There are so many religions in the world. How are they similar and how are they different? We need to know. The culturally correct view is to blend them all together as equally relevant and legitimate. But is that true? Prior to becoming a follower of Jesus, your host, Mike Shreve, was an avid seeker of truth, exploring many paths to spirituality. One of his passions now is to help bridge the gap so that others can discover the true light, which gives light to everyone entering the world. Now, here's Mike Shreve revealing the true light. The title of this episode of Revealing the True Light is Meditation Investigation. What's wrong? What's right? And of course, this is part two. On the last episode, we focused primarily on the biblical understanding of meditation. On this episode, we will focus on meditation practices outside of Christianity or methods professed to be Christian that instead veer from an authentic biblical approach. Non-biblical meditation methods are almost always centered in self. Things like self-awareness or self-realization are the designed goal. It is often an attempt to attain some higher level of mystical awareness, while biblical meditation practices are a celebration of and a nurturing of a relationship that is already established. Because when someone has been born again, where the Lord Jesus Christ comes into his or her heart, and a spiritual rebirth takes place, and the Spirit of God comes to dwell within that person, there is no need to strive to attain some higher level of realization because you have come into a true relationship, a true oneness with the true God. Please remember this statement from the last episode as we proceed because it is very foundational and very important. Listen closely. If meditation techniques are mechanical, mindless, monotonous, monotone, mundane, manipulative, magical, or even overly mystical, they are probably the wrong approach. Biblical meditation is relational. Let me say that again. Biblical meditation is relational. It's the overflow of loving communion between the Heavenly Father and His sons and daughters. On this episode, I'm going to touch on eight forms of meditation that are non-biblical. I'm not going to be able to go into great depth because each one of these categories could take an entire program, but I'm going to touch on each one so that you have a good overview of what I'm presenting. Here are the eight forms of meditation that are non-biblical. Breath meditation, yantra meditation, chakra meditation, mantra meditation, sound meditation, movement meditation, visualization meditation, and silent meditation. Before we go into these eight types of meditation, though, I need to lay something else as a foundation. And that is the idea in Eastern religions and New Age spirituality that the position of the body is critically important in meditation. 
Many believe that improper posture can hinder the flow of energy through the body that is supposed to empower the meditator to succeed in his or her meditation. That's a mechanical approach. For instance, in yoga, the lotus position is often the preferred form for the meditator. With the back erect and both legs crossed, with the feet propped up on each opposite thigh, the meditator is supposed to be in the perfect position to transcend into some kind of mystical experience. The lotus position is an ancient asana in yoga and is widely used for meditation in Hinduism, Jainism, and Buddhism as well as New Age spirituality. Why is it called the lotus position? Because lotus flowers are a sacred symbol in Eastern religions. Why? Because they grow in shallow bodies of water, and they have their roots in the mud, yet the blossoms float above the water, which is supposed to be symbolic of the condition of an enlightened person, someone who has blossomed into an enlightened state of mind and thus been liberated from the lower nature, the mud and the muck and the mire, one who has achieved nirvana or samadhi. And that's why this symbol abounds in Eastern religions. This flower would actually provide a beautiful analogy for a person who is a Christian, who has truly transcended the muck and the mire of sin to enter a relationship with the true God. However, because the lotus is such a dominant symbol in Eastern religions, and because the ultimate state spiritually that it represents is so much different than biblical salvation, I would personally not use it as a symbol for the Christian experience, lest I be misunderstood. So, let me ask the question, is the bodily position important in attaining some kind of enlightened state of mind? Very strongly, I'm going to answer with two words, absolutely not. Let me give you some biblical examples of times of great revelation that were not hinged to any kind of position of the body. For instance, Moses was just walking through a wilderness area when he saw a bush catch on fire and the voice of God spoke to him out of that bush. Daniel was sleeping when he received some of his prophetic dreams. The disciples in the upper room were just sitting when the power of the Holy Spirit came in the upper room like a rushing mighty wind Tongues of fire appeared over each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit in a very profound encounter with God. They weren't kneeling. They weren't sitting with their legs crossed and their backs erect. They were just sitting as people would normally sit in a room conversing with each other or praying together. There's no mystical power attached to any position of the body that we can take. Something else that is practiced often in Eastern religions is the use of hand symbols called mudras, symbolic hand gestures that are used in meditation. For instance, the Gayan mudra is often seen when someone is practicing yoga. The forefinger curls around and touches the thumb. 
And that's supposed to complete the circuit of energy flowing through the body. Well, you don't need a complete circuit of energy to connect with God. You need a heart that is inclined toward him with worshipfulness and devotion and love, submission, repentance, and surrender to his lordship. It's not your forefinger touching your thumb that attracts God to you or or somehow enables you to transcend fleshly consciousness. But anyway, the forefinger represents Atman, which is the Sanskrit word for the individual soul, and the thumb represents Brahman, which is the name for ultimate reality in Hinduism. Brahman is an impersonal life force that permeates the universe. And I did say impersonal, not a personal God, but a cosmic level of consciousness. Another hand mudra that is often used in Zazen, which is practiced by Zen Buddhists, is the cosmic hand mudra. And that's where your dominant hand cradles your other hand with both palms facing upward. Then the tips of your thumbs touch each other to form a compressed oval shape. And this cosmic hand mudra is supposed to represent the completeness and the emptiness of the entire universe because the emptiness of all things is a basic concept in Buddhism that everything is empty of any lasting existence or value. All right? So it's supposed to help with concentration. But holding your hands in a certain position is not going to help you connect with God. It's not going to help you connect with the Creator. You never find Jesus doing that or teaching that in the Bible. Now, again, I told you I was going to cover eight forms of meditation. I'm going to take about two minutes on each one. And so, again, we can't go into the depth. But number one is breath meditation, which has been referred to as the entry-level meditation that anyone can do. It primarily involves just calming your mind and sitting motionless or laying on your back, what have you. Different positions are allowable and concentrating on the inhaling and exhaling of your breath. And uh, some people that are not even religious at all or spiritual minded at all practice this in order to calm their emotions or calm their minds and try to get more focused. And certainly it could have somewhat of an effect that way. However, when you get into the depth of it, you find that part of the reason it is promoted as an effective means of meditation is the belief that the universe is permeated with a life force, particles of life force called prana. And in the Chinese belief system, it's referred to as qi. The Japanese refer to it as ki. It's the life force that saturates everything, including the air that we breathe. And so by breathing in that air, by focusing on breathing in deep breaths into your lungs, it's like an intensification of this divine essence flowing into you. And it's supposed to heighten your awareness. It's supposed to increase 
your level of sensitivity to more mystical states of mind. Is that true? Is the air we breathe saturated with the divine presence? Absolutely not. It's made up of hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and other gaseous vapors. It's not the presence of God flowing into our lungs. Now, unfortunately, many Christian songs have adopted this Far Eastern stance in some of their lyrics. I don't think the writers of the songs actually intended to. Maybe it just sounded poetically beautiful or symbolically attractive, but they really bought into a New Age approach. And these are songs that are beautiful songs, songs that I've sung, songs that have brought tears to my eyes at times, and yet they contain these lines that I balk at because I know they're not correct. For instance, in the song Reckless Love, you have the line, Before I took a breath, you breathed your life in me. Well, that's not true. God doesn't breathe his divine essence, his life, the spirit of life, the presence of God, the spirit of God into the body of a baby that is yet to be born. And then another song, So Will I, wonderful song, beautiful song. But there's a line in that song that says, as you speak, a hundred billion creatures catch your breath. Well, the animals don't have the breath of God. The creatures that fill this planet do not have the breath of God. The breath of God is not comprised of the same gases that the atmosphere around the earth is comprised of, or God would die of asphyxiation if he left the planet. Of course, that's ridiculous. And then there's the beautiful song, Great Are You, Lord. And one line says, it's your breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise. We pour out our prayer. No, it's not God's breath. Why do I keep emphasizing this? Because when God breathed into Adam, the Bible says he became a living soul. What was it that made his soul alive? Because breathing gives our physical bodies the status of being alive. Well, what made his soul alive? Because when God initially breathed into Adam, he also breathed himself into Adam. And Adam was one with God. He enjoyed the union with God and the presence of God dwelt within him. But when he transgressed, the presence of God took his flight. And Adam was a living human being, but he was a dead soul. And from that point forward, Men were devoid of the breath of God. Women were devoid of the breath of God. However, Jesus reinstated that when he arose from the dead and appeared to his disciples in the upper room. The Bible says he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And that's in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 21 and 22. And that's when the breath of God came back into them. God's breath is a spiritual kind of breath not the natural breath that you breathe in meditation. I have a favorite acrostic for the word yoga, and that is you only get air, Y-O-G-A. You're not heightening your awareness of God by doing breath meditation. 
You might get a more peaceful state of mind, but it's not going to advance you spiritually at all. Next, number two, is yantra meditation. What is a yantra? It's a geometric design that is supposed to aid meditation. And yantras are usually associated with a particular deity and are used for specific benefits, like one yantra may be for protection from harmful influences. Another yantra may be for the development of particular powers or the attraction of wealth or success. And they're supposed to be an aid to meditation. So because yantras represent the deity that is the object of meditation, it's supposed to help you connect with that deity. Can you imagine staring at some kind of geometric design and actually connecting with the true God? No, that's not going to help you at all. He said the way we approach him is to enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. It's worshipful, spontaneous, heartfelt utterances of adoration that bring us into the presence of God, not staring at some design that represents some deity. And the central point of a yantra has something called a bindu, and that is the main point associated with the god or the goddess that is represented by the yantra. And there's much more that can be said about that. Maybe I'll do an article on the website just on that subject. Number three is chakra meditation. Now, according to Hindu doctrine, there are seven chakras in the human body. And I'll enumerate them. Number one is the root chakra. That's down at the base of the spine. Number two is the sacral chakra. Number three is the solar plexus chakra. Number four is the heart chakra. Number five is the throat chakra. Number six, the one most people are familiar with, is the third eye chakra. And number seven is the crown chakra. And the purpose of meditation is to awaken something called the kundalini power. And the word kundalini means serpent power. And it's supposedly dormant at the base of the spine. And as you meditate, it rises up through all the chakras until it merges with the crown chakra and you go out into God consciousness. Well, how are you supposed to meditate on these chakras? For instance, if you meditate on the root chakra, which is in the groin area, you close your eyes and you imagine a red ball of swirling energy. And notice I said imagine, because these are not actually existent things. They're imaginary. Even the guru I studied under 50 years ago when I was a teacher of kundalini yoga at four universities, and I ran a yoga ashram, he said that they were imaginary and nothing else. They were just supposed to be an aid to meditation. Is, is that true? Is there such a thing as a third eye? Did Jesus teach a third eye. No. There's one passage that yoga advocates and New Agers often refer to where Jesus said, let your eye be single, but he wasn't talking about the third eye. Before and after that, he was talking about materialism versus spirituality. Go search it out. You'll find out that he was talking about having your heart focused on spiritual things not being drawn by the materialism of this world. 
had nothing to do with some supposed energy center in the forehead. There's no such thing as chakras. And yet that is a primary mode of meditation. And many Christian yoga groups, and I, I say that with tongue in cheek because I don't believe Christians should practice yoga, but many Christian yoga groups still meditate on the chakras and believe in the chakras. And yet to believe in the chakras, you must also believe in the Kundalini. And to believe in the Kundalini is to believe that there is a dormant divine essence in every human being that is like a serpent coiled, which to me represents something much more ominous and terrible and quite the polar opposite of the divine essence. It's the satanic essence that invades a person when they start meditating on that. Well, number four is mantra meditation. Now, when I was involved in yoga 50 years ago, back in 1970, one of the mantras I used was Ekonkar Satnam Siriwa Guru. And I was told at that time it meant there is one God, truth is his name, and the great spirit is our teacher. Now, some others interpret the meaning of the words a little bit differently. But basically, the, the, the issue is not so much the meaning of the words, but the method that you use. Because those words are repeated over and over again in a very monotone way in order to somehow invite an experience of oneness with the divine into your life. Now, can you imagine approaching someone that way that you wanted to engage in a conversation? Can you imagine walking up to someone and just saying in a monotone way, will you talk with me? Will you talk with me? Will you talk about the third time you say it, that person's going to turn and go the other direction because that's a thinking, intelligent human being you're trying to communicate with and some monotone, repeated phrase is not going to entice them into communication or some kind of meaningful conversation. It's going to repel them. And if it would repel a fellow human being, you can be sure it will repel God. God is not impressed with that. I one time went to a Hare Krishna center in Los Angeles. I wanted to witness to some of the people there. And I did end up having a conversation with the head of the Hare Krishna movement or the Krishna consciousness movement in North America. And he was very gracious and listened to me and I sent him one of my books, and it hasn't gone any further than that. But uh, I'm praying that he'll find the Lord Jesus. He turned to Krishna devotion about the same time I found Jesus. And that just broke my heart that he spent all these years where every single day they chant the Hare Krishna mantra 108 times each round. In fact, they have something called a mala which is uh, a meditation garland. It's uh, a group of 108 beads, similar to a Catholic rosary. And they'll hold the bead while they chant the Hare Krishna chant. And you're supposed to do it 108 times in a sitting and then do it 16 times a day. That's a total of 1,728 times a day. You chant in a monotone way in a repetitious way, 
a Hare Krishna chant in order to somehow achieve oneness with that deity. No, that's not how you do it. You talk to God in a very intelligible way, like he's the dearest friend you have. It's a flow of conversation. Worship is not supposed to be rigid and mechanical. And prayer is not supposed to be rigid and mechanical. And meditation is not supposed to be rigid and mechanical. I know there's some teaching within the ranks of Christianity on something called the Jesus prayer, where hundreds of times a day you're supposed to say or think or mutter the words, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And over and over again, you're to say, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Repeating that hundreds of times doesn't convince God to do it. Having faith when you say it one time is sufficient for Jesus to respond and wash your sin away with his precious blood. Besides, in Matthew 6, verse 7, Jesus said, When you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Number five, the fifth kind of meditation is sound meditation. I remember back when Yogi Bhajan would bring a big gong into a meditation gathering with a bunch of kundalini yoga people, and he would hit that gong sometimes for 20 or 30 minutes or more while people laid flat on their backs and just meditated on the resounding sound, the clashing, crashing sound of that mallet hitting that gong. And it was supposed to help them get beyond physical consciousness and enter into some kind of eternal state of mind. A gong is not going to help you come into oneness with God. I was talking with Taylor Houchins, whose testimony is on our website, incidentally. He was formerly a shaman before he became a Christian. And he told me that in their ceremonies, sometimes they would have individual drums and they would beat those drums until it kind of put them into a hypnotic state of mind that enabled them to try and transcend and have mystical experiences. In a similar way, I talked with uh, another person, uh, Ivana Greppi, whose testimony is on our website, thetruelight.net. She was an Umbanda spiritist medium before she found the Lord. And she said when they would gather, part of the way they would get into a trance is with African-sounding music with a strong beat to it. And they would yield to the music while they sent out their callings. That's what they referred to it as, where they would call upon individual gods to come and possess them. And so there's something called sound meditation. And then number six is movement meditation. As an example of that, let me tell you about Bodhidharma. About 1,500 years ago, this Hindu priest, whose name was Bodhidharma, went to China and developed something called Chan Buddhism. In Japan, it was later on to be known as Zen Buddhism. He arrived at the Shaolin Temple in the Hunan province of China, where he developed something called the 18 Hands of Buddha postures. There were 18 low-hand postures, and incidentally, the word low-hand means Buddha, because he wanted the monks to meditate when they were in motion. He felt like seated 
meditation was ineffective by itself. And so it developed into what we now know as martial arts, Tai Chi from the Taoist worldview. That's a similar approach. But this was movement meditation. The different moves are supposed to channel the chi or the key certain directions in order to empower the meditator. And we could go into that a lot more. Then there's something called visualization meditation. Visualization meditation is the method of picturing positive images, ideas, symbols, or using affirmations and mantras to help calm the mind while the body is in a relaxed state. But you imagine these various symbols representative of things you want, things you want to accomplish, things you want to have happen within your life, and it's called visualization meditation. All schools of martial arts visualize the flow of chi or ki through the body, and that's supposed to make the power all the more manifested in them. Finally, the eighth kind of meditation is silent meditation. Silent meditation. You can do that with a visual object like a candle or a dot on a wall. The whole purpose is to focus until you can purge your mind of thought to reach a thoughtless state. In fact, some say that, that the word mantra comes from two root words. The first root word is man, which means mind or thought, and tra means liberated. And so mantra means being set free from thought. Now, there's other ideas concerning the meaning of the word mantra, but that's one that you can find, that it means liberation from thought, because the whole purpose of meditation, no matter what form it takes, is to rid the mind of monkey chatter or this constant invasion of thoughts that come into our mind. And in order to penetrate the spiritual world, you've got to enter the silence, according to some. In fact, many who are involved in contemplative prayer teach that in order to be effective in your meditation, you've got to be still, be quiet. Now, there is a value in quieting your mind and listening, but not for long periods of time, not in order to enter the silence. And they always quote that scripture, Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God, to justify that approach of silent meditation. And yet, when you go to the context of that scripture, it has absolutely nothing to do with meditation. Absolutely nothing. Actually, God is describing the final destruction of the world. He says, come, behold the works of the Lord, who has made desolations in the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. It's describing the final cataclysmic end of this earth. And when God said, be still and know that I am God, it wasn't his way of saying, enter into a meditative state of mind where you're completely silent. Stare at a candle, stare at a dot on the wall, and meditate on ultimate reality. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, calm your heart. This final end to the earth is coming, but trust me, be calm, be peaceful, because I've got 
this thing in the palm of my hand. I'm going to work it out. I'm going to bring forth a new creation. That's in essence what he's saying. Be still, be calm, be at ease because God's in charge. Well, those are the eight primary kinds of meditation, and none of them are biblical, and none of them are effective, and all of them may grant experiences of supernatural phenomenon in a person's life, but will not carry that person into a personal relationship with God. Breath meditation, yantra meditation, chakra meditation, mantra meditation, sound meditation, movement meditation, visualization meditation, silent meditation. You don't use those methods to reach God. You talk to him like a loving heavenly father. Thank you for joining Mike Shreve today on Revealing the True Light. And thank you for opening your mind and your heart to the truth. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, cpnshows.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. You can explore the beliefs of many world religions more deeply by ordering Mike Shreve's book titled In Search of the True Light. We also invite you to visit our website, thetruelight.net, and sign up to be part of our global internet family.